This afternoon, we will focus on Lord's Day 8. Just want to set the context a little bit by reminding you of Lord's Day 7, which has question 22 this way, what then must a Christian believe? Answer all that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. What are these articles? And then follows the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed, which are Trinitarian, arranged in a Trinitarian fashion. And then comes towards the eight. How are these articles divided into three parts? The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second, about God the Son and our redemption. The third, about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed Himself in His Word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. So far, the reading of the Heidelberg Catechism. Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, that question that we just reviewed from Lord's Day 7, which says, what must then a Christian believe, is a question in our cultural context that is actually quite um, awkward. It feels really awkward in our cultural context of, of relativism to have a question that says, what must you believe? As soon as you hear a question like that, you realize that you're operating in a sphere that is out of harmony with the spirit of our age. In the world in which we live, faith is regarded as something deeply personal. It's not for anyone to say what we must believe, but it's for me to personally arrive at my belief system. And so it's altogether fine for me to read Scripture and arrive at my own belief system. And it's equally fine for you to read Scripture and arrive at your belief system. We don't have a must anymore of what we must believe, but we have options. And everyone's viewpoint is equally valid. If you go to a bookstore these days, a Christian bookstore, you're amazed at how many books there are with titles like this. Three views about baptism, or four views about baptism, or two views about election, or, or three views about election, or four views about Genesis 1, three views about creation and evolution, two views about women in office, three views about inspiration. There's a whole smorgasbord of beliefs out there, and the idea today is that all of them are equally worthy of consideration, and that no one should ever say for one moment that this is the true and good and sound doctrine, and that is not good and sound doctrine. Somebody once said that the doctrinal world of contemporary Christianity is comparable to flying an airplane without ever being able to land it. You just circle around and around and around, checking out the landscape, but you actually never bring the plane down. But the Bible and church history show us that sometimes you just have to land the airplane. Faith is ultimately not about options. Uh, who's going to die for something that's a mere option to believe? Faith is not about options. Faith is about God-given truth, and faith involves Christians agreeing about what God has revealed in His Word. And so there is a must in the realm of faith. I think the catechism is is beautifully in accord with Scripture when it says, what then must a Christian believe? Because otherwise we'll be like a ship at sea without a rudder. 
And I think you can imagine what it would be like to be out in the Pacific Ocean in your, in your yacht and your rudder isn't working anymore. Um, you're just going to get blown about in every direction. You'll have no control anymore over the direction of your ship. And you'll probably end up getting shipwrecked because having a rudder is not optional if you are a sailor. So this afternoon then, with a view to keeping us stable and grounded in the faith, the Catechism starts us on a new journey through the Apostles' Creed. We're not the first ones to do this journey. The Apostles' Creed has been known literally for hundreds and indeed almost thousands of years. The Apostles' Creed is known literally by hundreds of millions of Christians all over the world now and in the past and God willing in the future. So we are far from the first ones to set out on this journey through the Apostles' Creed. It's a beautiful journey because here we find the must of faith. Here we found, find doctrinal foundations upon which the church is built. And if we move even one of these doctrinal foundations a little bit, it's like taking out that one block in your game and the whole tower goes down. So you could take out any one of these 12 doctrines, delete them from the life of the church, you've got no church left. These are the foundational core doctrines on which we all build our faith on which the church is grounded. And the beautiful thing about the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed is that they're simple enough for your children to understand. Uh, you can explain them to even small children here this afternoon. You can explain them in your home. You can explain them in catechism. You can explain them in a Christian school environment. They're simple and powerful summary statements of Christian faith, and at the same time, they're profound. And you can actually have... Uh, entire volumes of theology written about the 12 articles. You can have entire volumes of theology written about any one of the 12 articles. And if you visit a pastor's library, he'll point you to many books that are pertaining to each one of the 12 articles. So simple enough for children, yet remarkably so profound that you can think about it every day and never really get to the bottom of it. Now, as you probably know, the Apostles' Creed wasn't written by apostles. Probably somebody pointed that out to you last week with Lord's Day 7. In fact, the Apostles' Creed, as we have it today, wasn't in existence until probably about the 6th century, so the, year, the 500s. Um, and in its exact form as we have it today, it didn't exist until about the 7th century. But the interesting thing is, when you dig into church history, you soon find out that the Apostles' Creed, as you have it today, as you sang it together a little while ago, actually does have legitimate precursors going right back into the first and second centuries. And we find out furthermore that the Apostles' Creed has its roots in baptism. It has its roots in baptismal liturgies, baptismal worship services of the early Christian church. Because in the early Christian church, just as today, when someone was converted to Christ and was about to be baptized, they would first profess their faith. And usually that would happen through a series of questions asked of individuals as they stood before the congregation. And so you can imagine, go back in, in your mind to the second century or the first century, um, nearly 2,000 years ago, and, and imagine yourself in some Christian congregation, let's, let's just pick one, Laodicea or Ephesus or Colossae at Asia Minor. It is Sunday morning and someone is about to be baptized and that person stands before the congregation and the minister says to him or her, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? 
And the aspiring baptismal candidate would say, I do. And then, do you believe in God the Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate? Do you believe that he was crucified, that he died, was buried, and so forth? And the person would say, I do believe. And then thirdly, do you believe indeed in God the Holy Spirit? And do you believe in a spirit-born church? Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? And again, the person would say, I do. And all of this, of course, flows from the passage we read in Matthew 28, where Jesus commanded his church to go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so from the very beginning, the Apostles' Creed had a very strong connection to the sacrament of baptism. We're baptized into the name of the triune God, and we confess our faith in the triune God in the Apostles' Creed. And so we will see this afternoon how Christians are called to believe in the triune God of their baptism And we'll see, first of all, the Trinity is a life we live, and secondly, it's a doctrine we confess. First, then, it's a life that we live. Now, it's possible that some of you have questions about the way I've set it up this afternoon. Maybe you think it would be better to first speak about the Trinity as a doctrine we confess, and after that, only as a life that we live. Well, it would be possible, of course, to do it that way, and In the past, certainly I have done it that way, to first speak about the doctrine and then the application. But you know, there is a certain way in which your life actually precedes your doctrine. Now, that might not be the case in everybody's life. It might not be the case in the the case of an adult person who comes to faith, shall we say, in their 30s or 40s. Maybe for them, doctrinal awareness is first and then experiential awareness, but for a lot of Christians who grew up in the church, there's an experience of the Trinity that long precedes any kind of doctrinal understanding of the Trinity. What I mean is this, when, when Reformed churches receive children into their families, these children are baptized as infants. Within a week or two of birth, usually, these children are baptized, and they're baptized in the language of Matthew 28 into the name the one blessed name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So long before they can understand anything, these tiny little children are baptized and they are officially brought into a relationship with the God of the covenant who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they are receiving promises from the triune God. These promises are being brought into direct personal connection with them before they have any any intellectual or cognitive awareness of it. You might say it's kind of like how you experience water long before children go to school and find out about the chemical composition of water, namely that it's actually two hydrogen atoms connected to one oxygen atom. Before they ever find that out, H2O, they already know quite a bit about water. They know that it's fun to play in. They know that it cleans them. They know they have baths in it. They know it's good to go and splash in it. They do many, many things with water long before they know what water actually is. And you don't need the formula, actually, of of water to know something about water. Well, in the same way, I would say children of the church, long before they 
conceptually or doctrinally understand the Trinity already are experiencing the work of the Trinity in their lives. Let me tell you what I mean. What do we do with little children? Do you start them off with a lecture on Lord's Day 8 when they're two years old and say, Johnny, it's time to tell you about the Trinity? You don't usually do that, but what you do do is you teach them to pray. You teach them to pray, and you say, say with me, little one, say our Father who is in heaven, and you teach them a prayer, maybe a bedtime prayer, maybe a prayer before a meal, maybe a prayer at the beginning of the day. Your children are speaking to God their Father, and they're putting their trust in God their Father. They're learning to look to God the Father for their help and strength long before they can say one word about the Holy Trinity. And then you can think about how as children grow up, their conscience begins to develop, and they do things that are bad, and they know they've done something bad, and they feel guilty. And wise fathers and mothers will will guide them through that feeling of guilt about having done wrong, and they will teach them to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins, Johnny, Susie. Don't you do that with your children? You teach them. You don't start off with Lord's the Eight and, and give them the Athanasian Creed full bore, but you teach them that Jesus Christ died for their sins. And so they're relating to their Savior, Jesus Christ, when they pray, forgive my sins for Jesus' sake. They're being washed in the blood of the Son of God before they even know one word about the Trinity. And so the same is true when parents teach their children. I hope that parents do that, not just small children, but young people as well. We need to teach our children to depend not on our own strength and on our own wisdom, but on the strength and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. So children learn that the Spirit of God dwells within them and that the Spirit of God is a source of power and a source of strength through which we are able to do the will of God. And so without even being able to say the first thing about the doctrine of the Trinity, the small children of the church are loving it. I want you to think about that. The smallest children of the church are loving the doctrine of the Trinity right now. They belong to that triune God. The triune God has established his covenant with them. And every person of the triune God has a claim on those children and has a connection with those children. It's also the case when we gather on the Lord's Day and the children are present. That's the beautiful thing about Protestant churches that historically we've always said that children need to be present in the worship of God as soon as that's reasonably possible. And the worship service begins and What's the first thing the children hear? Well, they hear a greeting from God, and here's one of those greetings. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Who's that? Well, that's God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Who are those seven spirits? Well, a better way to translate that probably is the sevenfold spirit. So the spirit of fullness. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. So already when they're little, the children are in church and the triune God greets them. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit say grace and peace to you also, boys and girls, you little ones in the family of God. A triune greeting. 
And then at the end of the service, what happens? Again, something for everyone, a word of proclamation, a word to send you home with encouragement and consolation and confidence, and we call that a blessing. When God blesses his people, that's God saying, my favor is upon you and not my wrath, and I'm going to prosper you and not curse you. And this is what the blessing says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then you boys and girls, you can go home with the blessing of Father, Son, and Spirit upon your lives. So the entire life of the church, the entire worship of the church is Trinitarian. Uh, we enter into the church in a Trinitarian fashion. And for all of these reasons, the boys and girls of the congregation experience the Trinity before they ever know conceptually, intellectually, doctrinally how to speak about it or how to defend it. It's a life we live before it's a doctrine we confess. Now, this sort of thing is actually specifically stated in the Belgian Confession. Belgian Confession has several articles about the Trinity. The first one is Article 8, where the doctrine is stated. <clears throat> and then in Article 9, it's entitled, Scriptural Proof of This Doctrine, This Doctrine of the Trinity. Now, let me read to you a few sentences from Article 9 of the Belgian Confession. It says, all this we know, namely this doctrine of the Trinity, we know both from the testimonies of Holy Scripture and from the respective works of the three persons and especially those we perceive in ourselves. That's a very remarkable sentence. We know about the Trinity because of what Scripture teaches about it, but also because of the works of these three persons that we perceive in ourselves. That's an incredibly fascinating sentence. And at the end of Article 9, in the last paragraph of the Belgian Confession, we, we read something similar. It says, Moreover, we must observe the distinct offices and works of these three persons towards us. Each person of the Trinity has an office or a work that is towards us, a work that is done for us and in our lives. So we can feel what God our Father, our protector and provider is doing, and we can experience the fruit of the Spirit as He renews our hearts and transforms our lives, and we can know experientially what it is to be forgiven in the blood of the Son of God. We feel release. We feel deliverance from guilt and from bondage to sin. What comes out in all of this, then, is that the doctrine of the Trinity... Is not some kind of theory to be discussed only in theological journals and at conferences for theologians and pastors and church historians. The doctrine of the Trinity, rather, dear brothers and sisters, is a life for you to love. The Lord is calling you to live this week again a thoroughly Trinitarian life, a life in communion with all persons of the Trinity. You can live this week, what a glorious privilege, in fellowship with the Father, and with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. That's the privilege. That's the secret joy of being a Christian. Having seen then that the Trinity is a life that is lived, we also want to indeed go on to show how it is a doctrine to be confessed. And there's an interplay here between doctrine and life. The more we understand the doctrine, the more richly we experience the Trinity. 
And the more richly we experience the Trinity, the more we are able to grasp the doctrine. So there's an interplay, a kind of a feedback loop, if you will, between doctrine and life, and that's very important. So no one should ever say all that matters is that we experience the Trinity. No, that's not true. We, we, we do experience the persons of the Trinity, but we absolutely require also the doctrine of the Trinity to interpret our experience, to make sense of it, and to keep us grounded in God. Now, before we delve into this second point, we need to remind ourselves of what we say in the Belgian Confession in Article 1 about God. We declare in Article 1 of, of this Belgian Confession that God has many attributes, but at the very beginning of this Belgian Confession, we say that God is eternal and is incomprehensible. That means that you will never be able to reduce God to some kind of a formula. You've probably had that satisfying experience in mathematics in high school when, you know, out of all the confusion of what the teacher is saying or the textbook is teaching, all of a sudden you get it, and it all, it all becomes crystal clear to you, and you've got it. You've got the formula, and you are just delighted because now it all falls together. It's comprehensible. But with God, we can never get to that point where we say, now I've got it. Now I've got God figured. Now I've got it all in this beautiful formula, and I'm safe, and I'm good to go forever. The Catechisms, or the Belgian Confession says you'll never get there. God is incomprehensible. So you're going to push against the limits of your intellect, and you'll find out to your, hum to your humbling that God is infinite, and you, a finite creature, cannot fully grasp God. Now, that's especially true in regard to the Trinity. In its creeds and confessions, the church says many things about the Trinity, not to reduce it to a formula, but simply to say, after Scripture, what God has revealed. So where does this all come from in the Bible then? Where does this doctrine of the Trinity come from in the Bible? We should all work to the point, dear brothers and sisters, that we could readily share this doctrine with people who don't know about it. Over the next weeks, you, you as congregation will spend more time on this. For example, in the Lord's Day 13, you will have a pastor here hopefully giving you a sermon about Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. We confess there that Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. And then in Lord's Day 20, we have an overview of the person and work of the, of the Holy Spirit. So tonight, we, we just have time, actually, for a kind of a global review of what the Bible says about the Trinity. Now, in the first place, when we're talking about the Trinity, we are talking about one God. The Bible couldn't be more clear. We worship one God. The world has one God. There is one Creator God. There is one Redeemer God. Uh, the Bible it could not be more emphatic than it is about this. We think of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the Lord your God is one. Or Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. Think of the first commandment. There is, uh, you shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord in the first commandment. So nothing could be more foundational to a biblical worldview than monotheism. And maybe that's ordinary for you to be a monotheist, but you know, in the ancient world, that was a radical religious position. The Israelites were unique among all the ancient peoples as monotheistic. 
When they were in Egypt, they saw a multitude of deities being worshipped. When they got to Canaan, they saw a multitude of deities worshipped. When they were exiled to Babylon, they saw a multitude of deities being worshipped. When the Apostle Paul came to Athens, he said, I see that you are very religious because I see a temple in every corner and I see people worshipping any manner of different gods. So in that realm of the Old and New Testament worlds, the biblical worldview was shockingly radical when it said there is only one God. So the whole Bible, from beginning to end, is profoundly, consistently monotheistic. So if anyone ever tells you that the doctrine of the Trinity means you are worshiping three gods, you need to rebuke them sharply and tell them that you are a Christian and you believe in one true, living, eternal, and holy God. The Bible is also very emphatic that worshiping any creature is forbidden. The only person in the universe who is worthy of worship is that one true God. And the Bible has many heavy anathemas upon people who worship anything other than the one true and living God. Uh, For example, even God's great and glorious angels uh, may not be worshipped. If you ever met an angel, at least uh, an archangel like Gabriel, shall we say, your inclination would be to worship because that angel is so full of glory. So in the last book of the Bible, we find John, the apostle, frequently encountering heavenly beings other than God, and every time he, he encounters a heavenly being, he feels like falling on his face to worship this creature. And in Revelation, we find those angels saying to John, don't do this. Do not do this. John, I am a fellow servant with you, and all your brothers worship God. Don't worship me. The angel was appalled that John would worship an angel because only God may be worshipped. Only God is worthy of that devotion of our hearts. And yet, here's the thing. This is is really mind-boggling, really, if you think about it. In that same book of Revelation, which is so powerfully monotheistic, which says that you may not worship any creature except God, that same book of Revelation has repeated scenes where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is freely and abundantly worshipped. For example, in chapter 5 that we read this afternoon, there's a powerful hymn of worship uttered to Jesus. This is what it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Can you imagine that being ever said about any created being? That that created being should receive all power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And a little bit later in that same chapter, at the end of the chapter, Revelation 5, we see, we see that Jesus is worshipped in one and the same breath as the Father. This is what it says. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb, that's Jesus Christ, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus is worshipped. He's worshipped freely and abundantly. He's worshipped in the same terms as God the Father. That's remarkable. There is one God. The Bible says that from beginning to end, and yet there is this person, Jesus, who is not the Father, 
being worshipped as God. He is God. He's distinct from the Father. And yet he's one with the Father and equal to the Father. It's the most powerful testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ is the fact that he is worshipped. We saw that in the end of Matthew as well, in the Great Commission or just before it. The disciples are all together. Uh, Jesus appears in their midst in verse 17 of Matthew 28. When the disciples saw him, they worshipped him. Now, if Jesus wasn't God, what should Jesus have done at that point? He should have said, don't do that. Don't do that. That's wrong for you to worship me because I'm just a creature like you. But Jesus received that worship. And it wasn't the first time that Jesus received worship. As you go through the Gospels, there are many, many instances where the Lord Jesus Christ is worshipped by His disciples when they literally fall on their faces and they say things like, woe is me. And that's what people say when they're, when they're in the presence of deity. For example, when Jesus calmed the storm at sea, what did the disciples do? Did they say, oh, that's cool. This is an amazing man that we have in our boat here. No, they didn't say that. They said something much more profound. They knew that they were in the presence of God himself, that God in some unfathomable way was present in that man, Jesus, who was in their boat and who calmed that storm. They knew that only God has power to calm storms. And so there are so many instances in the Gospels and the Epistles and in Revelation about Jesus being sent from the Father. He's not the Father. He's not just another mode of the Father. He's a completely distinct person sent from the Father to the world and eventually returned to the Father. He's distinct from God. He's his own person, and yet he is God. So we have two persons who are equally God, and yet there is only one God. And then there is more, because before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, I won't leave you alone, but I'm going to send to you another comforter, even the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit is said to dwell in, in the church as God had dwelt in the temple in the old covenant. So here you are, church, and you're called the temple, and who dwells in a temple? Who lives in temples? Boys and girls, who lives in a temple? Does a creature live in a temple, or does God live in a temple? A temple is, by definition, a house of God, a dwelling place of God. And so when you are called a temple as a congregation, and when God the Spirit is said to dwell in you, then we know that God the Spirit is indeed God, because a church is, by definition, a temple. And so that is a doctrine we confess. We confess God the Father is God. God the Son is distinct from God the Father and is God. God the Holy Spirit is distinct from the Son and the Father and is God. And yet there are, or yet there is only one true and living God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity in a nutshell. And we could write many books beyond that and probably you've got a few on your shelf at home maybe even. But really, that's, that's it. That is almost as far as human capacity can take us. There is one true, living, and eternal God, and yet there are three divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, each one eternal, each one equal and glorious, glorious in honor, each one worthy of worship, each one fully committed to you in the covenant of love. 
That's the triune God that we worshiped. So we were baptized into his name. Ever since we were little, we were greeted by him in worship. We were blessed by him in worship. We meet him in his word. We hear him in sermons. This triune God is very busy in our lives. He's busy in our lives to provide. He's busy in our lives to protect. He's busy in our lives to clean up the mess of our sin. He's busy in our lives to sanctify us through his spirit. And so, let us live this week fully and joyfully in communion with our triune God. And let us confess our faith thankfully. Let's be thankful for the Apostles' Creed, and let's be thankful for the Catechism's faithful exposition of every article of the Creed. It's really beautiful Christian doctrine that you are receiving here in these next Lord's Days. Um, Doctrine that has stood the test of time. Doctrine that has been proclaimed and shared and defended for centuries. And so many millions of people have found it to be precious and comforting for them. And so let's receive the Apostles' Creed with thankfulness. Let's receive the Catechism's explanation with thankfulness. And let's not fall prey to the individualism and relativism that sometimes infects even the Christian world. Let's not fall prey to the idea that we get to define the faith for ourselves. We don't. The Lord has given us His Word, and His Word is a Trinitarian Word, and so our job is to hold fast to that good and sound doctrine. Amen. Let us sing in response to the Word of God, the Trinitarian hymn.